From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida... Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. There's nothing quite like March Madness, and the Gators are preparing to put their best foot forward in the dance for the third straight year. It took a strong showing in the SEC tournament to get there, led by Andrew Nemhard's season-defining three to knock off top-seed LSU and secure their spot. On today's show, we'll get set for the NCAA tournament, discuss the latest news from spring football, and mull the most underrated athletes in sports with FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter. Then, we'll catch up with one of the most beloved Florida basketball stars of all time, back-to-back national champion Lee Humphrey. But first, the Gators did enough dancing in Nashville to make it onto the stage they most desired starting on Thursday in Des Moines. But Selection Sunday wasn't a walk in the park, as they had to sit on pins and needles until the final teams were announced before hearing their name called. So as the 10th-seeded Orange and Blue prepare for the 7th seed, the Nevada Wolfpack, we begin our roundtable by asking Chris about that taxing waiting game. It seemed like kind of a, uh, a cruel trick to kind of play on them. It came down, there were, there were really three holes left, and you saw the Nevada pop up at the seven. They said, well, if they're, they're not the 10, they're certainly not going to be the next one because the next one was going to be a, a two and a 15, and they weren't going to be either one of those. So really came down to that last hole. You know, Mike White was asked about that, and he said he felt pretty good. <laughs> and I can't say I necessarily shared that thing because uh, you wait that long, you wait that long, you wait that long, and boom. But uh, at the same time, um, he had said that once he saw Ohio State and Arizona State and a couple of those other uh, teams had gotten in, he said he felt pretty good about about where they were. So uh, you know, I guess he said he was a much cooler cucumber than uh, than some people. But um, obviously, the players are very very happy to see their name pop up there. So the story going into the SEC tournament was the losing skid and, and Florida kind of losing the opportunity to, to seal things up before they got to Nashville. But obviously that juju, if you will, kind of changed in Nashville because they beat Arkansas pretty handily. And then, of course, the win over LSU and, and the way that they won that game. So can you just talk about where this team is now as opposed to where they were a week ago? I think one of the most pronounced things that's happened to this team over the last uh, maybe even just like 10 days is uh, the rotation being reduced maybe even more. And I byproduct of that, Adam, was the matchups that they faced in the in the SEC. But when you look at the, the minutes distribution um, from the tournament, I mean, you're talking about the five starters uh, averaging in excess of 30 minutes a game. Then you're talking about Noah Locke, who was relegated coming off the bench, um, just given what's going on with his uh, his hip pointer and what have you. Uh, he didn't have a very good game against Arkansas, but he hit some shots against LSU and certainly hit a couple in the game against Auburn. But Locke and Dante Bassett are really the only subs that really played. You know, I, Isaiah Stokes wasn't going to play against Arkansas because uh, they're too fast. He wasn't going to play against LSU because they're too big and they rebound too well. And he wasn't going to play against Auburn for the same reason he wasn't going to play against Arkansas. You're talking about a wide open floor kind of game. And he, he's not going to be able to play against that right now. Uh, in time next year, yes. But Stokes only averaged uh, two minutes he played four minutes total in the game. Had a DMP. Uh, DeAndre Ballard just they stuck him in 
some oh by the way minutes as they were clearing the court against Arkansas. So, I mean, literally, you're talking about your five starters averaging. I mean, I look at Keontae, 33 minutes, uh, Kayvon, 33 minutes, Jalen Hudson, 30, almost 32 minutes, uh, Kavari saves over 30 minutes, Nemhard, uh, over 36 minutes. I think he had 39 minutes in one game. So he's found the guys he's playing with. That may change a little bit in the NCAA tournament, given what the matchup situation is going to be. But, uh, uh, Mike White now knows the guys he trusts the most, the guys he figures are the most accountable. And you're talking about three seniors, three freshmen, and Dante Bassett. And basically that's, that's kind of it with this team right now. And it's kind of a, a fascinating evolution given where this team was. Um, I think Jalen Hudson has basically, uh, come back from the dead. I mean, think where he was when we were talking about him in January, trying to figure out what's wrong with him. And now I believe over the last 10 or 11 games, he's averaging over 14 points a game. And last year, for the season, he was at 15 and a half. So he's kind of uh, morphing back into the player he was. And now pile on that a little bit, Adam, is uh, he's, he's a much better defender than he was a year ago. A lot of the stuff that he's that he really had to fix over the course of the last two months he has. And now you put on top of that a little bit of a leadership element. He's not in the uh, Kavarius Hayes realm. But uh, he's certainly somebody that they're looking to to make big plays, especially on offense for this team right now. You mentioned Andrew Nemhard and the number of minutes that he's playing. They've definitely been more productive because he's become a much better shooter. And that got highlighted after he hit the game winner against LSU. But I, I know that, that you wrote a little bit about this after that game, the fact that his shooting numbers have changed drastically over the course of the year and made him a weapon not just to distribute the ball, but to also score it. Yeah, and it changes everything because now you got to go get him. And if you go get him, that also opens up the ability for him to, to drive the ball, and he's gotten much better at finishing. And if he's driving the ball, that means he's also dangerous as the guy who can, who can drop it off and, or, or kick it out for – three-point shot. So uh, Mike White deserves a lot of credit uh, for fixing his shot. I mean, it was awkward looking from the beginning, but I tell you what, I, I, I didn't think he was much of a shooter last summer when he first got here. And then during preseason practice, they're going, no, 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 he's going to be okay. Because I remember him, he, he had a couple really good offensive games in that tournament. I guess it was the World Games or whatever the international tournament was when he played with R.J. Barrett and that Canadian national team before he uh, checked in last summer. So he's a weapon now, and obviously opponents got to scout him. And they got they they got to play for that. And I, I've seen another thing about Andrew. I mean, he was he was pretty shy and Cam didn't really like being up there on the podium. He's gotten a lot better on that on that front too. So he's kind of broken out a little bit out of his shell. And uh, he's a leader beyond his years as a freshman point guard. And uh, the roles have become much more defined, much more streamlined. Uh, like I talked about at the beginning. And certainly he is in the middle of all that bit because what's going on outside the lines. Obviously, Andrew Nemhart is the general on the court. And then you kind of got uh, Kavaria Hayes as kind of like the five-star general, kind of leading everybody. But everyone's looking at Andrew Nemhart to run that team. Let's look at the matchup uh, for the Gators against Nevada. And interestingly enough, I, I don't know if there's a greater disparity in the entire tournament, Chris, between the win-loss records of the two teams playing. So I'm curious just for your thoughts on Nevada, the matchup, and I know also a, a unique angle there for Jalen Hudson with a personal connection. Yeah, he's he played on the AAU team. Uh, it's called team called Team Loaded out of Richmond against the the Martin brothers, Caleb and Cody. And uh, there's a lot of uh, subplots in this Nevada team. You're talking about this team has won 110 games the last four years, ever since Eric Musselman got there. Now, Musselman's the son of... Bill Musselman, who was the first ever coach of the Minnesota Timberwolves and also before that coached the 
University of Minnesota, and also was a four-time champion of the Continental Basketball League with the Tampa Bay Thrillers, the uh, the late Bill Musselman. But Eric Musselman has totally changed things out there in Nevada. Um, I imagine he's ticketed down the line for a better job than that, but he's obviously done a great things there. You're talking about this Nevada team. They go 6'8", 6'11", hmm. 6'7", and both their guards are 6'7". We're talking about the Martin Twins. They transferred from North Carolina State. Jordan Caroline transferred from Southern Illinois. Trey Porter, I believe, transferred from... Hell, I'm getting them all mixed up. I don't, I, I don't even know off the top of my head. Treshawn Thurman is a transfer from Nebraska Omaha. So, um, all fifth year seniors in the starting class. And this is, this is a team that can score it. They're incredibly athletic. And obviously they're, they're, they're older. But speaking of athleticism, Jordan Caroline, their best front court guy, he's at 36 minutes a game. He's averaging 17 a game, 9.6 rebounds. He's the son of Simeon Rice, defensive end of uh, who, who obviously I got to know very well during the time with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, one of the best pass rushers of his of his generation in the NFL. So this is this is a tough matchup. When you're the tenth seed, you're gonna get to. They're all gonna be tough matchups. Mm-hmm. And la- last year, the, this team, the bulk of this team, you know, made it to the Sweet 16. It would have been in the Elite Eight if they didn't run into those uh, twin Cinderellas of theirs, uh, Loyola Chicago, beat them by one point. If you recall last year, Loyola Chicago won their first one at the buzzer over Miami, mm-hmm. beat uh, Tennessee, I think, with five seconds left. And sure enough, they beat this uh, this Nevada-Reno team uh, by one point in the Sweet 16 to go on to the Elite Eight. So that's how good they were last year. They're good this year. And Florida will certainly have their hands full. Now, having said all that, it's a high-scoring Nevada team. But they don't face defenses like Florida's in their conference. And uh, like most teams, they're going to find out that the scoring isn't going to be as easy, uh, just as LSU's found out, just as Auburn found out. But that's how Florida has to dictate this game. they got to play it down to their pace and need some guys to make shots. They need Jalen Hudson and Kayvon Allen to make shots like this in the SEC tournament game. And I got it. you have to give Kavarius Hayes credit. This is a different guy. I mean, he's at 11 points a game, uh, I think his last, I think, half dozen games. Uh, eight rebounds a game during that same time. He's taking his game to a completely different level. It's funny, these guys talk about how they don't think about things at the end, but these three guys in particular, Kayvon, Kavarius, and Jalen Hudson, are are playing some really good basketball collectively at what will be the end of their careers. And uh, you know, maybe there's not a coincidence to that relative to them them knowing their uh, their collegiate mortality. Before we move on from basketball, there is just part of this that I find pretty compelling. I'm thinking about the conversations that we were having even a month ago on this show about Florida maybe not even having a winning record. I mean, there was a time when the NIT was considered maybe a pipe dream, and yet here we are discussing the NCAA tournament. So can you just talk about the way that the season sort of morphed to where it is now and and the expectations? Because as we've seen, anybody can get into the tournament and make noise. How capable is this team of being one of those under the radar? I don't know if Florida could ever be a Cinderella, but at least an unexpected success as a 10 seed. Yeah, as a 10 seed, you're... Think you are kind of a, a Cinderella, but I, I know exactly your point. You know, just the, the brand and the name across the jersey, you don't see that. But I mean, it's this season has been insane. I mean, they get destroyed in the first game against um, against Florida State. They go to Bahamas and end up taking out a fifth year senior for a freshman. They beat West Virginia. Then they lost to Michigan State. They lost to Tennessee. They lost to Kentucky. They lost again to Tennessee. Some of those were games that they blew or just had droughts late in the game and uh, cost them. Uh, at, it was a TCU or Mike White said, you know, what are we doing? What do you want to make of the season? 
And he, he commented about it yesterday. I mean, he goes, he goes, do you want to play in the NIT? Do you even want to have a winning record? What do, what, do you, what do you want to do? And they were so inspired by this back up against the wall speech. They went out and lost to TCU in the second half. So uh, <laughs> uh, it was, then, then came the five-game winning streak. Everything seemed fixed. And they're, so they're on a roll. And they're going to play George at home and get 18 wins. They're going to be in the tournament. Then Georgia comes in and punks them, a terrible Georgia team. They go on a three-game losing streak. Now they're not making the tournament. So it's, <laughs> they, they've experienced all kinds of uh, uh, emotional highs and lows. Um, I'd say more lows than highs, actually. But the wins against LSU kind of rescued this team a little bit. And uh, LSU is obviously a really, really good team. some reason, even though look, if you go side by side, tail, they, they don't match up very well against LSU with their size and the way that they can rebound. And, but uh, uh, those are the two games that, are, that ultimately were the ones that put this team in the NSA tournament. So uh, they're they're on one of their positive uh, vibes right now. So it's a good time to be on it, and they're going to need it, obviously, going to a place where they've never played Nevada before. Again, Nevada's going to be highly experienced, very, very confident. Um, if, if they were fortunate enough to get through this game, they're probably going to play Michigan, and Michigan isn't that far from Des Moines, Iowa. So um, there'll be a lot of factors going against them this week. But they're in the dance, and obviously it's much better than being a one seed at home at Exact Tech Reno, Connell Center, playing North Carolina Greensboro. Lest we not forget, there is uh, spring football going on right now. Practice is, is heating up. And, Scott, I know that you've been over there and, and tracking some of the storylines from the spring. I, I know you had a piece on C.J. Henderson a couple of days ago. So tell us the, the latest news out of spring practice. Well, in terms of the story on C.J. Henderson, it was just something that he got to experience recently. It's called the NCAA Elite Football Symposium. And what that is, they started in 2017. They invite about 30 players from around the country who are entering their junior seasons uh, and are projected as high-round draft picks. And they invite them up to the NCAA headquarters. Coincidentally, it's the same weekend as the NFL Combine, but the two uh, the two events are totally separate. What this is, they, uh, they introduce these players to really the business side of the NFL and what a player can expect to go through as he transitions from being a top prospect into in the draft into you know getting into the NFL and it, how contracts are structured the pitfalls of selecting agents paying taxes when you sign a, a thirty million dollar contract what does that really mean for you financially how much of that goes to taxes and it's just a wider range of topics and uh, you know I think it's a good opportunity for some guys to uh, be more prepared for when all that happens because. Uh, you know, that's such a big part of their experience and they, they get to that point in their life. And if you don't have knowledge and good people around you, and we see it all the time, uh, you, you read about these guys who signed for all this money and, and now they're broke and the NFL players career, you know, on average only lasts about four years. There's not a lot of Tom Brady's and Peyton Manning's out there. And uh, most guys get, get a shot and they play three or four years and maybe one decent contract and then they're back in the real world so uh, just a good experience for cj henderson obviously it speaks to his talent uh what the NCAA boy considers him going into the season as one of the top prospects in the country and uh I, like i said it was just a good experience and vernell brown the the team student athlete development coordinator he went with him and he's going to try to introduce some of the things they learned to the players who never get to make that but he can teach them you know, on campus, and I, it's one of those, uh, I think, a proactive step that's probably overdue in some ways uh, pretty by the NCAA, so good move on their part. 
In addition to CJ, there's a lot going on in spring, including a cool story that came out last week about uh, the return of a Gator great on the staff, and that is Kiwan Ratliff, who one of my favorite players back from the mid-aughts, if you will, uh, just continuing to bring back that vibe, Scott, of the Gator standard, right? Who are the people who have lived the Gator standard? And as they get more into the, the thick of spring practice, Kiwan Ratliff is a good example of someone who brought that at a high level. Yeah, he did. Uh, if you're a Florida fan, you remember some of those picks he had as a really good defensive back. And the Kiwan's uh, return recently to help in the, uh, the recruiting side of uh, the program. You know, Dan Mullen has reconnected with a lot of those players from that era when the Gators were winning those, uh, what, two national titles in three seasons, the four years that he was offensive coordinator. So he's he's reconnected with some of those guys. And uh, we saw Percy Harvin obviously coming out some last spring. And now Kiwan Ratliff joins the program in an official capacity. And uh, that can never hurt when you bring guys from such a successful era back into the program to help not only bridge the gap between their era and also to provide something, you know, tangible for the players in the program now. And, uh, you know, Q1 was one of those guys who I did a story last year on him around August of last year. You know, after several years uh, playing and then getting away from football, he he finally got serious about coming back to school and earning his degree, which he did last summer. And then I think that helped him reconnect with Mullen and, and an opportunity presented itself. And now he's back with the program. And that is one of the uh, uh, positive storylines around the team this spring. Obviously, you know, Adam, there's not a lot going to get accomplished on the field this spring, except teaching guys developing more physically, maybe uh, some new positions, new roles. If there's one significant thing I think so far we've learned, it's how it looks like Amari Bernie, the defensive back who had a really good game in the uh, Peach Bowl. Uh, he's been working at linebacker and plays, you know, in the position departed by uh, Voshan Joseph. Uh, so that's one new wrinkle that we've seen on defense. He's got the size to play that position. You know, you always look at new players. Chris Still, uh, defensive back, a uh, true freshman's a guy that. I've been watching closely, certainly passes the eye test for a guy that, you know, was in high school three or four months ago. Um, offensively, you know, Felipe Franks, Emory Jones, Kyle Trask, I mean, they're all getting work there. Less questions in that position than in the in the past, as we've probably talked about recently. I mean, Felipe Franks, he, he, he you could tell he was energized by the growth that he's experienced under Mullen and and I see that same mentality this spring. And the key for him is just to continue that maturation and take a hold of that job and never give it back. And uh, they're wanting to obviously get Emory Jones involved more, get him some reps. But, you know, it's, it's as of now, it's Philip Bay Franks and pretty good grip on that job. What else we got? Running back Malik Davis is back uh, from a serious what, broken foot last year. He looks 100%. Marco Wilson, who hurt his knee, uh, last year, he's still making progress, but both of those guys coming off serious injuries uh, look good. So right now, you know, first three days of camp, the big thing is uh, I think, you know, the fans were out there. The program still got that uh, positive momentum from the end of the season. And, and now we'll get to see a little bit more as they get into pads and get a little more physical heading into the orange and blue game. 
And we saw an announcement this week that uh, is actually, I think, pretty exciting. You know, oftentimes homecoming is not a game that's that appealing. Most teams are trying to just win homecoming and they'll play the uh, the Sister Mary of the Poor, uh, that type of school. Uh, Florida's going a different route. It's going to be Florida and Auburn on homecoming. First time Auburn's been in the swamp in over a decade. So I'm curious what you guys think about having that kind of high profile matchup as your homecoming weekend. Well, I mean, I think it's always good to have those kind of matchups, especially if, you know, depending on your age, if you're a longtime Florida fan, I mean, you know how important the Auburn-Florida rivalry is to the history of each school. The younger generation, unfortunately, hasn't seen this uh, matchup. No one has in what last time they met was in 2011 up in Auburn. So that will have been eight years by the time the season rolls around. Like you said, the Tigers haven't been to the swamp in 12 years. To me, I think as the SEC moves forward, it's, you've, you're hearing some rumblings now. How can a program like Auburn go 12 years without visiting a school? You like to see those matchups a little more common. The one game I remember, Adam, one of my all-time favorite games as a student at UF was at the 94 game. My gosh, the Gators were number one. Auburn came in. Auburn won the game, unfortunately. It was, what, Nicks to Frankie Sanders. <laughs> and I think Patrick Nicks, now his son, is at Auburn. As a little flashback memory there. I covered that game. <laughs> Chris was there. Florida had five turnovers in that game, and that was, uh, that was the end of basically Terry Dean's uh, existence as a starting quarterback in 94. But um, you talk about how like it's unique. Um, I don't know that it's that unique. You're playing a team like Auburn for homecoming because – I'm not mistaken. I think Florida played LSU for homecoming in 2017, a game yep. um, mm-hmm. McElwain lost. Is that, is that right, Scott? Yes. And uh, not to like rub salt in the wound because obviously LSU won that game in 2017. Um, to Scott's point, what's unique about this is like welcoming Auburn back into the fold because there really is no excuse. I mean, you can't go to another a power power conference, find a, a matchup that's that's been so so long to get played. It's, it's it's ridiculous, and especially when you think about uh, before the SEC changed its uh, scheduling format a few years back. Florida and Auburn played every year, and it, they were like LSU. They went for the longest time playing playing every year, and for some reason that that one was taken out of the equation when they reduced uh, uh, annual opponents. So uh, it'll be good to see that a back in the uh, back in the swamp. Moving on to our PAT, I was inspired by the news I saw this week that Dirk Nowitzki. Uh, reclaimed the sixth spot on the NBA's all-time leading scorer list, which he actually had previously, but then LeBron passed him, and so now he he got bumped back again and then had to pass Wilt Chamberlain to move up that list. And it just made me think about some of the greatest players of our generation, multiple generations, that maybe don't get their due. Because I don't think people realize the greatness of Dirk Nowitzki, and he's probably going to go down as one of the best players of all time. Just look at the numbers. So I was curious for for you guys, in your lifetimes, I want to know an athlete that stands out to you as maybe someone who's unappreciated, who isn't recognized as being one of the greatest ever, but would fall into that category if you look at it through the, the proper lens. I think an obvious one in terms of recent history is a fellow who, like Dirk Nowitzki, played in Texas in the NBA. As as great as he was, I mean, if you think of the five greatest players in NBA history, nobody's going to mention Tim Duncan, right? Mm. Um, but you can make a case that Tim Duncan is certainly in the top 10 players uh, all time, but in his generation alone, I mean, just think of how many players overshadowed him. Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant, uh, you know, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Steph Curry near the end, you know, Kevin Durant, 
<laughs> yeah, I could go on and on, <laughs> but yet that guy has more rings than any of those guys, maybe except the Jordan and uh, maybe Shaq. I don't know. I, I'd have to look up my ring count. I don't have it in my head, but uh, so he's the guy that just sticks out right away. In, in baseball, in my lifetime, the one I always think of is Jack Morris, the great pitcher led everybody in innings and wins and starts when I was a kid in the eighties and into the early nineties. And I'll still remember that game seven against the Braves. We've talked about before he got the win in the 91 world series. I mean, he, he he's never gotten his due. Hey, correct me if I'm wrong about Jack Morris. Wasn't he like a notorious jackass? Jack Morris. Uh, he was very surly with the media, had quite a right. reputation. And, and there's no doubt that's part of the reason he's not in the hall of fame. But at the same time, when you really do go back and look at his numbers, he was, as they say in today's language, he was a beast. <laughs> yes, he was. I'll go to the NFL, the sport I probably know best. It's one of the greatest ever at his position, but probably won't come up in the conversations of the greatest of his position because he doesn't preen and dance and diva stuff like uh, so many do at his position. I'm going with Larry Fitzgerald. Hmm. When you play on the West Coast, you're, you're automatically going to be underappreciated usually. Especially if you don't play for a notorious, notoriously really uh, uh, outstanding franchise. Now, uh, the Cardinals had their greatest moment ever because of Larry Fitzgerald, but in great part because of Larry Fitzgerald. Obviously, Kurt Warner was part of that Super Bowl team. This guy's now that's caught the third most passes in NFL history. I believe he has uh, four or five seasons with 100 catches. He's over 1,300 for his career, I believe. And all he's ever done is comport himself with class and dignity. Maybe that has something to do with his dad being a sports writer. That might have something to do with it, I think. The biggest diva position in all of sports, and he stayed in Arizona his entire career. So uh, yeah. I think that speaks a lot to him. I think it speaks a lot to probably what he became in terms of being a fa- being part of the fabric of the community. I just think the guy's always been a fantastic player and great for the league and hasn't gotten the, hasn't gotten nearly the due that he probably deserved. I'm going to give you guys one that I, I know Scott will like this a lot. I was thinking through some of the guys that I've seen over the course of my lifetime, and a lot of them inevitably were on the were coming from the Braves. But uh, I'm going to give you guys John Smoltz because he's a Hall of Famer, so you know obviously he has gotten some due, but he sort of got overshadowed as a starting pitcher by both Glavin and Maddox being on that same staff. But if you look at what he did, both as one of the better starters of his era and also one of the best closers of his era that versatility in this time of specialists to do both of those at such a high level you just don't see anymore because you have guys who are starters you have guys that only come in the sixth guys that only come in the seventh john smoltz did a little bit of everything i think that's a a dying breed in an increasingly specialized sport like baseball yeah, that's a good pick. You can make a lot of arguments about this, which is why I really like it as a PAT, and I hope people listening to it will be inspired to maybe strike up one of these conversations with their friends and see what answers that they come up with. But uh, for now, we're going to have to put a stop to it. We must move on. But one of the reasons we have to move on is because Chris has got to get on a plane. He is headed to Des Moines, Iowa to follow the Gators. And so make sure to follow Chris and all of his NCAA tournament coverage over at FloridaGators.com and at GatorsChris on Twitter. He is your number one source for all things orange and blue hoops. And Scout will continue to track spring football and all the stories emanating from that. So check him out at Gators Scott, also on FloridaGators.com. Gentlemen, hope you have a great week. Look forward to your coverage. And uh, thank you so much as always. All right. Thanks, Adam. See you, Adam. While the 04s dominate most of the memories from the back-to-back title glory years, the 03 that completed that legendary starting five was just as critical to their success. 
Lee Humphrey was the true embodiment of a student-athlete, setting numerous records on the court in addition to being an academic All-American in the classroom. So on the eve of the big dance, we caught up with the record holder for the most career threes made in the NCAA tournament and asked him to take us all the way back to the beginning of his story. So I had a, my, my mom, I lived with my mom and dad and my sister. I got a younger sister who's three years younger than I am. I grew up loving basketball. My dad was a, was a middle school basketball coach. So we had keys to the gym and I was at the gym every night with my dad, uh, just shooting hoops and always asking if he would take me up to the gym, call my buddies. We'd go play two on two and three on three late at night. And that's really where I got my start in basketball. Were you always focused on basketball or were there other sports that you were into at the time? I played a lot of sports, so I played uh, football and baseball growing up. I quit baseball after Little League, played football up through high school, was a quarterback. Uh, I guess my, my claim to fame really was I won the uh, the Blood County Long Throw Championship. I threw it 55 yards. Oh, wow. Uh, it was the best throw of my entire life. Uh, probably haven't come close since, but that was the <laughs> highlight of my quarterback career. <laughs> we didn't throw it too much, so... <laughs> Uh, I, I like basketball a lot more, so I gave up football. But uh, really, my my favorite sport outside of basketball was probably uh, water skiing. I, mm. I grew up on near a lake. You know, my parents would have the summers off; they were both in education, so we would go to the lake three or four times a week, uh, and I would slalom ski barefoot a little bit. Wow! I really loved the time out on the water. I think that's probably why I went with basketball. I, you know, if, if you go with football, you got to practice all summer long. That's so true. You're giving up your skiing time. <laughs> Are you also a snow skier? Because for I started, when I was younger, I skied on snow. And so as a result, I cannot water ski because it's the opposite technique. So I've snow skied once when I was young, 10 or 11. And all I remember was that I was terrible. So I never went <laughs> back again. So it must be exactly how you said. It must be opposite. Because right. I can water ski, I can't snow ski. Yeah, just stick with what you know. Yeah, exactly. Well, obviously, anyone who knows you and, and watched you play is familiar with the fact that what you did know how to do was shoot the ball really, really well. When did that develop? Were you always a shooter, or did that come later on? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I could always shoot well, but when I was a younger player, I was more of a just a, a scorer. I used to drive a lot to the basket. I always thought ball handling was one of my strengths as a younger player, so especially you know, elementary school, middle school, I, I did a lot of penetrating, getting to the basket, finishing, close to the hoop, um, some pull-up jumpers, uh, and then I would make a few threes as well. Uh, but really when I started getting into high school is when I started to really shoot the ball well and become known as a, as a three-point shooter. Um, and then in college, really taking off, focusing on the three. So was, was that a concerted effort? Did you see, okay, well, maybe athletically I'm not going to be a guy that drives the basket anymore. This is a role that I need to play, or were you kind of pushed in that direction? No, I think it was more of a just a natural progression. As you get older and you play bigger players, you have to figure out how you're going to score. So as I got into high school and playing in AU and playing against some athletic guys, I, I figured out I was going to have to shoot and, and shoot the ball well. And, and I did always shoot the ball well and kind of had a natural inclination to shooting. So I think it was just a natural progression into my into my high school year. And uh, my dad was a coach and knew a lot about basketball and could help me. And I had a good high school coach as well that could help me with my shooting too. So uh, I was fortunate to have um, a lot of a lot of smart basketball people around me. So I'm not breaking any news here. So uh, no one should be upset when they hear this. But you were a Tennessee fan growing up. So I'm curious, <laughs> how did you go from being a Tennessee fan to a guy who's interested in playing at the University of Florida? 
Yeah, so that's that's a great point. I grew up, you know, in Maryville, Tennessee, 20 minutes outside of Knoxville. So always went to games with my dad. I have I have fun memories. My dad and I usually go to uh, Tennessee football games. And, you know, if we didn't have a ticket, then dad would let me go up to the scalpers and, you know, give me a limit and say, hey, if you can get the, if you can get two tickets under 15 bucks, then uh, then go for it. So that that was always a big thrill for me to go to, to football games with my dad. And of course, Peyton was playing at the time. So mm-hmm. it was, um, you know, Tennessee was really good. A lot of fun atmosphere around the university. But but also, too, I, I grew up a huge SEC fan. So I watched all the teams in the league. I was familiar with, with Florida basketball. And in, in my eyes, you know, Kentucky, of course, with their history was was the basketball school of the conference. But at the time, I thought Florida was right up there and was just as good from a basketball standpoint at that time. And then probably the second best school to go to in the conference outside of Kentucky. And Coach Donovan was dynamic. Uh, I love the way that Gators played. They they played fast and they shot a lot of threes. And uh, it just looked like a fun place to play. So as soon as they started recruiting me, um, it was pretty easy for me to decide to go to Florida. When you got to campus, what do you remember about your early experiences and maybe which upperclassmen steered you along the way and, and helped you in, in your journey? Yeah, great question. I, I think when I first got to campus, it had to be probably just eye-opening that, you know, wow, I'm surrounded by a lot of great players that uh, were really talented. I mean, my first two years, we didn't win the national championship like the last two years, but we had great players, you know, Matt Walsh and David Lee, Anthony Roberson. Christian Dreyer, my freshman year, all really good players and would make you work every day in practice. So I think I learned a lot from watching, you know, watching Matt Walsh. He could really score. He played with a lot of intensity and passion when he was out there. You could tell that he competed on every possession. So, you know, I I knew from the start to to earn any playing time at Florida, I was going to have to play as hard as I could uh, all the time and, and, and do the right things, make sure the coach could trust me, uh, and, and would know what I could do on the floor. So when you did get that opportunity to start for the first time, and you mentioned some of the competition for playing time, it was pretty intense. What do you remember about cracking that lineup for the first time and getting on the floor as a starter? Yeah, so whew, for the first time as a starter, I don't I don't remember it so much as uh, a game when I was not starting, but I wasn't really playing that much. There, we had a home game against uh, Northeastern uh, right around Christmas time. I think it was the last game before Christmas break. Berea, the point guard from the Mavericks, was on the team. Hmm. So we, you know, we knew it was a good team coming into the game. And then I was put in into the first half and I took a couple charges during the game in the press and made a couple of good plays on defense. And I made three three pointers. I think I was three for three for that game. Worked my way into really a six man position. And then finally, when Christian left into the starting position, but one of my strengths for or why I was able to play my freshman year is I felt like I really understood my role very well. And and knew that I could come in and play very solid on defense and coach would could always trust that I would be in the right position. Uh, I could trust that I could guard someone. And then uh, I felt like, you know, if I had an open three that I, I was going to make it, I was shooting the ball well at that time. So I, I had a lot of confidence, but I, I had to earn that throughout the whole first half of the season, which is why I think you know, I used to p- approach practice as, as my games and I was able to build that confidence. So when the time came, I was ready. Well, you also developed uh, quite the work ethic, and anyone who was a Rowdy Reptile back in the days would remember this, but you would come out hours before home games and just work on your shots. And then at one point, I don't know when, that's what I want to know, you started sometimes throwing the ball into the stands and letting the Rowdies who have been there for hours try and see if they could make a half-court shot or maybe you know wherever it was on the floor. Uh, how did that develop? And just talk about your relationship with the Rowdies as a result. 
Yeah, so I felt a, a special connection with the Rowdies because they were there early. They were waiting for the games, you know, a day, two days, three days in advance. You know, I think I saw just their passion and I saw that I was one of, I was the first guy out on the floor and like, wait a minute, let's reward them a little bit for, for showing up so early. So I, I can't remember exactly when it was. I started throwing uh, the ball into the, to the rowdies, probably my, my junior year is my guess, but you know, they embraced it and, and, and the whole rowdy reptile section would, would, would rally around whoever was shooting. So, you know, after the first day, I say, Hey, we got to do this. We got to do this every game. Did anyone ever make the half court shot? I think we had one, one make in my entire <laughs> career at Florida, <laughs> but I, I will say that one of my fondest memories was not even a part of a, a game at Florida. It was from the rowdy reptiles and warmups before the Kentucky game, uh, my senior day game. So I had a routine where I would come and I would shoot one-handed set shots underneath the basket. And there was a manager on the team. His name's Joey Coons from my hometown. And he would always rebound. And then so I, I went through my routine and then I got out to three and I was shooting some one-handed threes. And once I felt good, I would go into a normal shot. And I got hot and I got on a roll. And, and all of a sudden, when I got to like 15 or 16 makes in a row, I started to hear the Rowdy Reptiles count my makes. <laughs> so somebody had been counting my makes the entire time. But I got up to 27 makes in a row. Wow. Uh, and the Rowdy Reptiles counted those like 15 down to 27. I was so bummed when I when I missed that last one. But so that was a fun memory that I'll, that I'll keep forever. What What is your all-time record? Do you know? Do you have that number in your head? I may be 27. That's I don't know. That is, is that, is that was probably the best of all time? It, it may have been. I can't, I wow. can't remember exactly a time where I uh, remember counting more consecutive threes. You mentioned earlier those first couple years and the, the success that you had, but not having that in the tournament. Before we transition to talking about all the success you guys did have your junior and senior years, I'm curious if there's anything that you and collectively – you felt like the team learned from those first two years with the early exits when you had so much talent that you used to be more successful in those 06 and 07 years? Yeah, that's a tough question. I think I don't think we used the early exits so much as we did the SEC championship uh, my sophomore year. I think that SEC championship that we won, it was the first in school history, I believe, gave us all a lot of confidence, and we felt what it's like to win a championship and to win a tournament. Going into your junior year, expectations on the outside were pretty low because of all the guys that left, and at that point, Joe Kim Noah, he was just a bench guy, didn't do a lot, and obviously Al Horford and Corey Brewer played a little bit, but I don't think... No one thought necessarily that Torian Green was going to come in and take over a point guard the way he did from Anthony Roberson. So you've said that confidence internally was high, despite the things I just mentioned from an external standpoint. Where did that confidence come from in your mind? Yeah, I think it came from the previous season and playing with David Lee, Anthony Roberson, Matt Walsh. We used to scrimmage against those guys in the summer, the same group that, that was the starting five for my junior and senior year. And we would compete and we would often win. And we felt like just the good chemistry that we could build off of. I remember we were coming back from a dinner at Coach Donovan's house in the summer before junior year and before sophomore year. And I had an old Jeep on, on campus that I was driving around. And we had Joe Kim, Al, and Corey all in the Jeep. And uh, we looked out, we all looked at each other and said, you know, guys, we're going to be really good this year. <laughs> and I always remember that moment as just kind of a defining moment where we were in sync and agreed that, yeah, we got a lot of confidence and, and we could be really good. When you think about that first championship run, was there a moment 
during the year where you thought, okay, this team can win it all? That's tough. There's, I think there's two moments where, where I would probably hang my hat. And I don't know if the first one we were saying we could win a championship, but we felt really confident that we could beat anybody. And that was after we won the preseason NIT tournament in Madison Square Garden. We beat Syracuse and Wake Forest. Both were ranked teams and supposedly pretty good and we had beaten the uh, the competition up until then pretty handily so we thought i think at that moment in time we're thinking you know what we can be really good and then the other moment that sticks out to me is uh after we beat uh, villanova in the elite eight coach donovan had the core group of guys together and said you know guys you can do you guys can do something really special and i think you know he didn't say win a championship but he said we could do something really special and i i kind of hang my head on that as a moment where he's thinking, yeah you know what we could win a championship fast forwarding to the second championship totally different scenario everyone expected the team to win you had that pressure on you pretty much 365 days once the last championship had ended how much different was that year and how did you handle the weight of those expectations? Yeah, that year, it, it's different because the, the first year is more just going out to compete and no pressure because you haven't won in the past and there's no expectations. The second year, a lot of expectations, especially for, you know, Al and Joe Kim and Corey, who pretty much knew were going to be NBA players. So I, I think that the level of expectations that those guys had to deal with were a little bit different than what I had to deal with personally. But just as a team, there was definitely more pressure. And Coach Donovan, I felt like one of the great things he did that season was find different ways to, to keep us motivated and to show us that just because you won it last year, you're not going to be able to do it the exact same way. You're going to have to take a different path to get to the same the same goal. And I think for the most part, the, the team did a great job the entire year uh, understanding that it wasn't going to be easy and it wasn't going to be exactly like the previous year. You know, it's so unique in college basketball to have the same starting five win back-to-back titles. And given the way the rules are now with the NBA, it, it may never happen again unless that one-and-done rule changes. So I'm curious, as you look back on that starting five, one of the greatest starting fives of all time, undoubtedly. What worked so well about the mix of the five of you, especially you being a little bit older and then the four other guys who are all part of the same class? It's hard to say what made it so special. I think sometimes it just happens naturally. And I I think that's what happened. I mean, I do think we had a a good mix of skill sets and personality to where uh, we could gel like that. And everybody did something a little bit different and, and had a different strength, which I think made that a little bit more simple, but I can't really explain what made us, what made us gel. Uh, I do think, I guess, probably if I had to pick one thing, it would just be the unselfish, unselfishness of all the, of the team really, and of the starters. Without that unselfishness, it's probably going to be hard to gel like that. Now, you were part of a, a really incredible run for Gator Athletics, and I know because I was actually in school at some a, a little bit of the crossover there when you were wrapping up, but can you just talk about what it was like being on campus and being an athlete at a time when the program was doing unprecedented things that may never happen again? You may never have another school that wins two basketball, two football championships in a three-year period. What was that like from your perspective? It was a lot of fun. I think that's probably <laughs> just the best way to sum it up because when you go to school and you go to you know a college to play athletics, you really want the atmosphere. That's one of the, the fun things about sports. So the better the atmosphere in the gym, the better the atmosphere on campus, the more fun you're going to have. And, of course, the O-Dome was packed every game and the Rowdies were lining up. 
days in advance to get in. So every time you would walk to class, you would see people lined up. So it's just fueling you for that next game. Um, and then, of course, you feel the energy on campus, too, when you're in class or if people come up to you and talk about the game. It just makes the whole experience a lot of fun because there's so much energy and excitement and, and people are, are, are rallying around the success of the team. I know you guys recently had a, a 10-year reunion of that back-to-back championship team. I'm curious, outside of that, how much have you been able to keep up with some of your former teammates in the 11-plus years now since you graduated? I've been able to keep up a little bit, you know, try to message the guys every once in a while and see them when I can. Uh, it's definitely tough though, especially with, with our team because almost all the guys are still playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when we, and we were playing, we were, we were spread out across the world. Uh, of course the, the NBA guys were, were in, in the NBA season and traveling all the time and here in the U.S. and then, you know, Torian, myself, Chris Richard, Walter Hodge, Adrian Moss. Uh, we were all playing overseas. Uh, I think Chris even ended up in China a little bit. So, wow. and, and Adrian, Adrian may have played in Asia as well. I'm not 100% sure on that, but, uh, we had guys spread across the globe playing basketball, which is pretty crazy to think about. I'm scared to ask this question, but I'm going to do it anyway. What is the most unique and yet family friendly Joe Kim Noah story you can share with us? <laughs> Well, there's a lot of family-friendly stories. You mean, I mean, Joe is just, I think what sticks <laughs> out to me about Joe is his energy every day in practice. You know, I used to love when Joe would come into the locker room and he was either dancing or sing- singing. I remember this is actually a funny story. So we were, I was on a date with my with my wife. She wasn't my wife at the time, but we were dating. Mm-hmm. And we went out to Chili's or somewhere in Gainesville for a New Year's Eve dinner. It was just her and I, and we walk in, and Joe Kim was was eating in the restaurant, and he saw us before we saw him. So he screams out at the top of his lungs, Humpty Dumpty, you know, and (laughs) so the whole restaurant hears me enter, and I'm on with, you know, been dating my wife for a few months, and and here we are at our first uh, New Year's date, and (laughs) he he embarrasses us a little bit at at the Chili's. (laughs) That that sounds very much in character. Uh, <laughs> right. But that's, that, you know, that's normal for Joe. So I've got a lot of stories like that. Right. But, uh, yeah, right. Just, his, his energy was great. I'll never forget the clip of him dancing in front of Vern Lundquist is something I can never erase from my memories <laughs> as hard as I may try. Uh, <laughs> right, right. Likewise. <laughs> so you mentioned a moment ago, but after graduating, you went overseas to continue playing and that took you all over the world. So I'm curious where are all the places that you played and, and which ones stand out in hindsight? Okay, so I'd say I have memories that stand out from every country that I played, but I started in Greece and then I went to Poland, Germany, a year in the D-League, France, Ukraine, Hungary, and Lithuania. So eight different countries in eight years. Mm. Uh, I would say the what stands out the most, I was in Kiev in Ukraine in 2013-2015 when President Yanukovych from Ukraine was was ousted and, and, you know, people were protesting and revolting in the streets and it became violent. Uh, eventually we had to leave Ukraine, finish that season in Hungary. Now the league really started to fold after, after that, but that was uh, an incredible experience. We lived about a 10 minute walk, uh, a little over, right around the mile from uh, Maidan Square where all the protests were, were happening. So wow. that was by far the most uh, eye opening or, or memorable experience for my overseas career. The day that all of the fighting broke out in Ukraine, we had practice at our gym downtown in central Kiev. We live right in the center. So if you could imagine, it would be a mix of like Times Square and Washington, D.C. So the biggest city of right. Ukraine, uh, roughly 7 million people plus 
all of the, the government there as well. And if, if you imagine if you're a Florida fan and, and you're walking away from the swamp five minutes before uh, kickoff, th- th- that was what it was like walking away from basketball practice and all of the protesters going to Maidon Square. Oh, wow. Except everyone had makeshift weapons. So it was very, it, it, it was tense. Wow. I am curious from I talked to Al Pinkins earlier this year and, and he told us about his experiences playing overseas and how difficult it was in a lot of ways because of both the culture clash and also the language barrier because there's limits on how many Americans that can be on certain teams in these leagues. So how difficult was it for you to get over some of those language and, and cultural barriers as you went from place to place? It, it was difficult, but fortunately for me, and especially today in, a, in the younger generation, so many of the European players and coaches speak English. Uh, and I was actually fortunate enough to have American coaches as well uh, for a few years that it wasn't too challenging. When I was in Poland, it was tough. Our, our coach was from Belarus uh, and he spoke uh, Russian and a little bit of Polish. So our Polish guys would have to translate for the American guys. Coach could speak English, which was which was tough because you, if you imagine you've got a teammate who's trying to listen to the coach, mm-hmm. so that teammate wants to understand what the coach is saying and not really translate. But you have to rely on him to translate. So I remember there was times where coach would talk for about five minutes, and then I would get about a thirty second explanation. <laughs> <laughs> like basically, it's this, this, and this, and and you're you'll, you'll figure out the rest. <laughs> Right. Just draw it on the board and I'll right. do it for you. Right. Just go to, yeah, go there. Yeah, you're fine. You'll, you'll figure it out. I'll just shoot it. Right. Exactly. Just give me the ball. Shoot it. You know, I've heard you talk about this before and I thought it was interesting about the differences between playing in college and playing professionally and specifically how it relates to the team concept versus the individual. Right. It's, it's tough because once you're on a professional team, you have your career to think about in college and not so much thinking about your career you're really just thinking about winning and what do I have to do to, to win this next game uh, and, and and you know play well as a team once you turn professional you have to think about your career and your next job on the next team so it's it's tough because it's a balance between the team and and, and how you're doing as well and and obviously uh, the best teams have the same atmosphere that you would in college where it's about the team and guys are trying to win at all costs, no matter what it does to their statistics. But it's just harder to to reach that level of teamwork at a professional level, in my opinion. So when you retired from basketball, how did you decide what to do next and where to go? Because that, that's such a big challenge for so many people who've had the game their whole lives, then suddenly it's no longer there as, as a construct for them. You know, when I was in school, I was thinking I would be a doctor. Hmm. I never really thought I'd have a chance to play professional basketball. And once I had that chance, I, I you know, I was thinking, well, I'm not going to go back to med school, really. But I, I started to have an interest in, in business and especially international business living overseas for seven years. So I, I started an MBA when I was still playing, finished my, uh, I got a master's in business administration my last year playing. And it was actually a smooth transition where I only had about two or three months between school and finding the next position. So I had an injury my last year in Lithuania and we were pregnant with our, our first son. So we thought, you know, this is a really good time to, to get out of basketball. You're finishing up school. We're coming off an injury, getting older, you know, probably should think about next step in the career. Uh, and, and fortunately, I, I found through some connections with the university, found a, a job here in Jacksonville. My wife's family is, is nearby, just south of Jacksonville. So it was a good spot for, for us. Also close to the university, 
which is great. Yeah, and that proximity has allowed you to kind of stay involved in, in a unique way this past season where you jumped on the broadcast team for a few games. So I'm curious what that challenge was like for you being in basketball, but from a very different perspective. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I, I didn't really expect it. The opportunity came out of out of the blue. But of course, once, you know, you know, once the university asked me, hey, can you do some color for you know, Florida basketball radio? You can you can be on the air with Nick. Of course, I said, yes, I'll do it. Let's figure out how to how to make it work. I, I didn't really know what to expect when I ex- accepted it, but uh, I went down to to a game and sat between Nick and Bill Koss, so I got a, a live action feel on on how the game flows and where the breaks are, how to interject, and of course Nick coached me up a little bit. Um, and then in the Bahamas, I had three games back to back to back, so it was, a, it was a good way to get my feet wet and get some practice. It's different than as a player, I, I will say that because when you're playing, you're very focused on your role and what you need to do to impact the game. But when you're watching from the sideline and especially on the radio, you're trying, or at least I'm trying to pick up the patterns in the game, what's working, what we're doing offensively, defensively, the matchups. You're thinking about it a little bit more like a coach. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're traveling with the team, you got shoot arounds. So I'm curious, did you get on the court at all? Did you try and show up Kayvon or Noah Locke and say, hey, I can can still do this pretty well, guys? Oh, I don't want to try to show up those guys. I think they would... (laughs) think they would show me up uh no but I, I will try to get up there get out there a little bit you know if i can get out on the court five minutes before the guys do with my blue jeans and sneakers i'll go get a few shots up but uh yeah i don't want to challenge the guys to what degree can you still do it because i think a lot of guys especially shooters they can still do that for a long time after they stop playing <laughs> i can i can get out there and i can get in the groove and still make shots pretty well it takes me a little longer to you know get warmed up and and really feel like I'm locked in. But uh, I still play with with some guys in town a couple mornings a week, so I try to keep my shot up a little bit. So maybe not 27 in a row, but you'll, still, you'll make a few, right? I can make a few. I okay. get you more than 10 if I'm feeling good. <laughs> easy. That, that's more than most people. It's more than most people. Uh, we talked about your former teammates. To what degree have you been able to keep up with Coach Donovan as he's moved on to the NBA? So a little bit. You know, I've seen Coach Donovan – uh, throughout the years, especially during the summer, uh, when he was still at the university, would always would always see him come out and work out with the guys some during the summer. Uh, over the last few years, a little bit through text message, and then uh, maybe maybe see once once a year or so. But funny story, I actually ran into Coach Donovan randomly in St. Augustine hmm. uh, on, on King Street there in St. Augustine. As I was down there with my family, and he was there with his, and we ran to each other on the street. So that was pretty fun. I snuck up on him and tried to try to scare him on King Street. Did, did it work? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> they have a lot of ghost tours around there, right? So maybe at the trying to tie it into, yeah, into, into the ghost tours. Yeah, it's appropriate. It's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's the vibe of St. Augustine. It was, it was dark, you know, the lights were on. So good atmosphere. We started this by talking about your family growing up. Tell us about your family now, and, and depending on when people hear this, your family now may be different than it is at the time we're talking. Yeah, that's right. So it could go from two to three before people actually <laughs> listen to the podcast. So I've got I've got two boys. My oldest is four and a half. Um, his name is Oliver. My youngest, Jude, will be two next month in April. And then my wife, uh, we're expecting our next on Sunday. Wow. So it could be any time if, if the podcast is cut short, Adam, you know why. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we don't know what we're having. It'll be a surprise. So wow. we could have three boys or we could have two boys and a girl. We'll see. Now, either way, I'm sure people would wonder, well, 
are they going to be basketball players? Is that something you want for them? And, and have they taken to it yet, even at the young ages of two and four? I think they're starting to take to it. Of course, I would love for them to be basketball players, but if they're if they want to do something else, that's perfectly fine as well. Uh, but we do have two hoops in the backyard. We've got one at about five feet for my oldest son. We've got one at about three feet for my youngest. And they do. They like to get out there and they like to shoot. Uh, my oldest can dribble a little bit and he's got a decent looking shot. And my youngest just wants to do what he does. So <laughs> who knows? We'll see. Final thing for you. As we're talking now, the NCAA tournament is actually going on in the background. The uh, the first four is happening outside this door where I'm talking to you. Uh, there's a lot of freshmen on this Gator team that are about to play in the tournament for the first time. As someone who still holds the record for most three-pointers made in the NCAA tournament, what advice would you give to people experiencing that for the first time? I would say in, embrace the opportunity and go out there and just play with confidence and don't worry about the outcome. Just play hard. The team has played hard all year. I feel like, you know, they come out and they always show up and they give energy and they play defense. So, of course, keep doing that. But then on the offensive end, just have fun. Don't worry about losing. Just give it all that you've got and, and just let the rest take care of itself because that's, that's how you have the most fun and, and they won't have any regrets playing that way. Well, Lee, it was great getting to talk to you today. We know there's probably fans out there that want to interact with you as well, so they can do that by hitting you up on Twitter at LeeHump12. And uh, if your wife is upset that while she's on bed rest, you've been gone for 30-plus minutes, you can blame it on the Gator Podcast, okay? (laughs) All right. Thanks. Appreciate that. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. The madness starts for the Gators Thursday at 6.50 Eastern time against Nevada with live coverage on TNT and the Gator IMG Sports Network. We'll be back next week to break down the action and hopefully be talking Sweet 16, so don't miss it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the big dance.